Hello, and welcome to Glossonomia, conversations about the sounds of speech. I'm Phil Thompson, and of course, this is Eric Armstrong. Hi, hi, how are you? I'm doing pretty well. I have to confess that we do these now a little infrequently, and so I'm beginning to forget what our structure is, but uh, I trust in our improvisational abilities. Yeah, we'll figure it out. Uh, One of the things that's a feature of the show that we've been doing since the beginning is that we trade off hosting duties. And so I am ostensibly the host for this episode, uh, which means that you'll be editing it together. But I have to say and confess to the people out there that you also put together our outline for the show today, for which I am eternally grateful since I've been running around out of town. You've been so busy. Oh, my goodness. Uh, I'm about to leave to go early to the Vasta conference tomorrow, but that means I get a week to visit my parents. So I'll be busy relaxing at that point. (laughs) Okay, so uh, uh, hopefully you will be well relaxed by the time I I see you next, when I actually will see you in person at the Vasta conference. Indeed. Let's talk a little bit, if we, if we can, about what our plans are for the VASTA conference. We have this nifty new thing we've never done before, which is Glossonomia Live. I, and, I, I uh, think we have to, I, I think it's got to be different. It's, it's Glossonomia before a live studio audience. Yes, excellent, excellent. And I'll lean into the microphone. To get that. <laughs> exactly. Just that groovy. Uh, And that will be episode 24, and I forgot to announce that this is episode 23. And uh, let me get to what we're talking about today. Today is a day that we do really three phonemes at once, uh, and those are the nasals. We figured that uh, nasals uh, wouldn't keep us so occupied that we'd have to do one of these atrocious four-episode uh, coverages, and we can get them all shoved into one episode. We'll see if we can live up to that standard. I hope. I hope. Um, do, is there anything we need to talk about about just what the heck a nasal is before we launch into, like, the history yeah. of the nasal? The... Well, I think that we could talk a little bit about the articulatory facts of nasals, and that will fit in with our usual structure. Uh, It's the introduction of a whole new kind of articulation that we haven't discussed before. And it really is about the the direction, I suppose, of the vibrations. Certainly we should say first that they're always in English voiced sounds. And that stream of vibration is flowing up from the glottis up the pharynx, and then, of course, the pharynx bifurcates into the oral cavity and the nasal cavity. And uh, there's a lovely gate up there, potentially closing off the nose, and that's the velopharyngeal, velopharyngeal port. Now, have you heard it referred to as the nasopharyngeal port? You know, I, th- I think I may have made that up. Uh, <laughs> I know somebody was saying it, and I, yeah. <laughs> I was just recently with two of your former students, so that might have been what well, I heard. Well, I, I, I literally, just before we did this, I looked it up. Uh, uh, I think I might have called it a nasovelar, which is totally made up. I looked it up. Yeah. Um, and I think I'm combining nasovelar, which is um, two of the typical nasal sounds that we make uh, with this uh, uh, velopharyngeal port, 
which is the right term, is it not, Phil? <laughs> it, um, it is, I think. Uh, so, it, it makes some sense. It's the port formed by the velum closing against the back wall of the pharynx, uh, or opening away from the back wall of the pharynx. Uh, and in that way, the, the velum, which is the soft bit at the back of the roof of your mouth, uh, the, the velum serves as the door which closes off the passageway into the nose. In that way, we use the velopharyngeal port all the time in really most of our articulations. Mm-hmm. Every articulation we make that's flowing out the oral cavity is, if it's only flowing out the oral cavity and not through the nasal cavity, then we're using the velopharyngeal port as one of the primary articulators for that sound. So another way of saying that would be we're lifting our soft palates yeah. to close off the, the nose, the passages of the nose, and so that the sound can only go out your mouth and not go out your nose. When someone speaks in what's called a nasal, they speak nasally with a nasal quality, sounding, you know, classic Janice from Friends, that kind of quality is that the soft palate's down, yeah, and so the... I think Velopharyngeal port. Okay, I'm going to yes. have to practice that through the whole episode. <laughs> uh, that that port would be open all the time, to some degree. I think that we might need to come back to talk about nasality, denasality, and twang as perhaps se- separate vocal qualities. Oh, yeah, we'll save that for the end. Yeah, I think that's good. So, in this articulation, we, we've established that in most non-nasal articulation, which is most of our, our articulation... Uh, in English, certainly, that velopharyngeal port is closed, making most of our sounds oral. If we open that port, we've done part of it. And so you've just mentioned that part of that is to allow nasal resonance, nasal vibration, in addition to the oral vibration. If we add that articulation, or add to that articulation, a stop at some point in the oral cavity... Uh, then we are producing a nasal sound. That is to say, the sound is only flowing, the air is only flowing out through the nasal cavity. And that, that's an interesting thing, because there's three sp- spots in English that we use to stop that articulation. Yeah. Um, and in a way, it's kind of like, um, if you think of a river flowing down, right, and the river forms like a, a, a Y, right, and it could go, uh, it could go, down both forks of the river. Mm-hmm. Um, but when we close off, we dam one of those forks, uh, it's going to send the, the stream down the other fork. Um, now, where we dam that, that river makes a subtle difference to what ultimately comes out, the, the, the sound we hear coming out the other river. Um, and if the dam is further down... The, that space that's in your mouth is a little bit larger. And so that changes the resonance characteristics of the uh, overall chamber that the sound bounces around before it comes out your nose. And if it's closer, if the dam is closer to the forking place, then it changes it further. And we have three subtle variations of sound in English that we notice, but other languages have more places of damming that fork in the river. Yeah, I think I think that's a terrific way of, of thinking about it because we're thinking about this uh, 
holding pond of air. And it's like um, an eddy. Yeah, and there is vibration going on in there. There is some resonance quality that we can hear. Another way I'd like to think about it is that, uh, like a mute on a on a brass instrument, uh, the different size or shape of that mute will change the quality of the resonance. Or uh, trombone really uh, is changing the length of the tube and changing the apparent pitch. And mm-hmm. if you think about these three closing closing places of the oral cavity, you could really hear a pitch difference in the quality of resonance, even though the main tube is out through the nose. Yeah. So this is a voiced sound. It is nasal. Uh, that is to say the velopharyngeal port is open, and there's a stop. And this is something when I looked at the Wikipedia entry that took me aback for a moment, is that each of these sounds was described in terms of manner of articulation as a stop. Mm, nasal stops. Yes. Yeah. Some, sometimes uh, phoneticians will use that term, but um, they often drop the, the word stop and just say yeah. nasal. Um, yeah. And and that's absolutely true. The articulation is stopped. Um, we think about stops and stop plosives in a much different way. And to be as technical, we should call those oral stops, right? As opposed to these nasal stops. So I think that explains the full path of articulation there. Um, There's an interesting uh, phonetics term that I think is interesting, that there's this split between typically vowels and consonants that phoneticians called uh, sonorants versus obstruents. Mm-hmm. And uh, sonorants, typically people think of as vowels, uh, where there's a voiced sound, it is a flow, and there's, there's no turbulence in the airstream. And so uh, not, there's no friction, like a fricative, and there's no block, complete block, like we'd have in an oral stop. Um, an obstruent has those things, a, a complete constriction or a partial constriction. So uh, there is a constriction, right, the, the closure in the mouth, so it is technically an obstruent, but it's also technically a sonorant. So it is, yeah. uh, it's kind of playing both fields a little bit. Yeah, in articulatory terms, it's obstructed, at least in one place. And in acoustic terms, it's a resonance adjustment. Mm. We hear the sound, uh, we hear the difference in sound through the difference in resonance. Yeah. Uh, there's a, a lot of things in phonetics there where concepts overlap. Yes. <laughs> and yes. I think that's both difficult for students to grasp and, and very, very useful as well. Right. So we could imagine a little Venn diagram of two circles, and in the overlap place we'll have uh, things like uh, M and L and yeah. uh, other approximants like R and uh, uh, semivowels like W and Y also and you know, fit in that overlap place. I think students intuitively understand... That those sounds are all the same. It sounds like the same kind of sound. Yes. Uh, so you you just mentioned the sounds. Let's go ahead and reveal the three English mm-hmm. sounds, and we'll sure. take them, I guess, from the lip end back. Okay. So if we stop at the lips, 
if I stop at the lips and close off the velopharyngeal port, I'm preparing for a, a plosive, uh, in this case a voiced one. And so one way to, to feel this out is to start to say a B, but don't explode it. That you're building up some flow there behind it. And then if you release it by letting the sound flow out through your nose, mm. Mm. and in fact, we do this quite a lot uh, when we say like a word like embarrassed, we're building up flow, stopping at the nose, and then exploding it out the lips. Mm -hmm. uh, we'll come back to, I think in a moment, the way you could actually do that in reverse, that is to say, build up flow uh, behind a mm, and then explode it out through the nose instead. But let's hang on to that. So that's the first one. That's mm. That's an M. We all know that one. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Moving back, at least in English, <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, the next place to stop it is at the alveolar ridge. I always think that when we look at a diagram of the cross-section of the head and we see this little tongue tip raising up, we're not getting all the information because, in fact, the whole rim of the tongue is sealing off on the alveolar ridge, which goes all the way around. And so... It's in that place, in the middle, that we're stopping, but also all the way around, because we have to stop completely the oral flow. Yes, it's sort of the front edge of the tongue, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Mm. So, that difference between m and n is significant enough that we can hear the difference, that there's a minimal pair. That, uh, I try to think of a minimal pair word... Uh, met and net is, a, is an example. Nobody's going to confuse those two words. No English speaker is going to confuse those words, we hope. The next one, stepping back uh, further in the mouth, would be a velar closure. And as we've said before, velar closures are with the dorsum, or the, let's say, the back of the tongue, that we're closing the top of our tongue against the velum. And that sound is mm. Now when I do that, mm, I really feel like I'm closing off right to the edge of my hard palate, right towards the front of my velum, mm. not further back. Mm. There's probably variability in mm. that in the stream of speech, though. I, yeah, I think a lot of that, like other velar consonants, has to do with the vowel that's its next-door neighbor. If we're saying song, that mm is much more likely to be further back, whereas we say something like uh, uh, ring, it'll be further forward. So that, that variability does have to do with the, the vowel that precedes it, and yeah. I suppose if it's going to follow, like singing, uh, uh, the song is it's likely to also anticipate a forward articulation. Yeah, and and we've run into that before. Yes, we have. Um, now, there are some variations on these. Though, so we've got three main ones, yeah. but there are some uh, allophones that we... the other versions that we do that people, when they hear them, they associate with those one of those three. I so, think that I need to call Nerd Alert on you and have you explain allophone a allophone. little bit more fully. It's, it's a telephone that when you pick it up, you say, <laughs> Hello! Hello. <laughs> um, actually, in Canada, an allophone 
is somebody who speaks French and English equally ah. well. How um, interesting. But that points to the the etymology, I suppose, that uh, aloe is that twin or pair. Uh, in genetics, there are alleles. I'm trying Perhaps. to think of another word. I think it really comes from saying en français, allo, for saying hello. <laughs> I'm willing to buy that. <laughs> but, uh, um, uh, and, and also people think I speak all the official languages, all of them. Wow. Uh, I, I, I have no idea whether any of those folk etymologies are true, but that's the kind of thing I hear. Um, the, uh, but an allophone in uh, what we're talking about is where there are multiple articulations that are perceived as variations of one phoneme. So, uh, for instance, when I uh, take the word 10 and I turn it into an ordinal number, in other words, I put th on the end of it and say 10th, the n I say is going to modify itself to anticipate the articulation of the th, the th, uh, that theta symbol, um, the, the voiceless uh, dental Fricative, um, it is. Uh, it has to be articulated on the edge of your teeth, and so the N is also articulated on the edge of the teeth, and so we get a dental articulation. Now, it's a pretty subtle difference. If I say ten on the gum ridge and then ten on the back of my teeth, most people wouldn't know what I was doing. I could get away with it, and in fact many speakers of English coming to English from other languages. So, say I was a Hispanic speaker, I speak some Spanish, version of Spanish, and I say ten, I quite easily could put my tongue on the back of my upper front teeth to articulate that end, because that's how I do it in Spanish. And uh, it, most English speakers wouldn't recognize that you are articulating it differently than the way the English speaker is speaking it. Maybe and, you and I might go, yeah. oh, there might be something going on there. We should look at that. But most people wouldn't notice because it's al allophonic. It's perceived as being essentially the same. And is this dentalized and phonemic in any language? That is to say, is there a minimal pair distinction in any language between an alveolar nasal and a dental nasal? I, I don't think so. I don't think so. And you know why I think that is because it doesn't have its own symbol. Mm -hmm. That's that's my my clue that if it if there was a language where there there wasn't allophonic that they were actually s perceived as separate phonemes, then it would earn a place with its own. Yeah, that's the phonemic principle of the IPA, right. which is in their principles, their mission statement, right. So that's a dentalized N. Um, yes. Then a similar kind of pattern, we can take uh, an assimilation where the sound that follows is articulated with your upper teeth and your lower lip. So a word like invest, we might, not all people do this, particularly if you're being emphatic on the in part of it, you're going to make that more of an alveolar articulation. But at speed, a lot of people will say invest. And that N is being articulated in the same place as the V. And here we actually get a different symbol in the IPA because there are languages yeah. where they will pronounce, they will have two words that are um, 
cognates, right? The no, not cognates, minimal pairs. That's the yeah. term I'm looking for. Um, they they are uh, for all intents and purposes exactly the same, except one is articulated with an N, and the other is articulated with a M. And uh, that M sound, the second one that you made, is a labiodental nasal. And, it, and what's uh, the symbol for that? Uh, well, shall we do all of our symbols uh, so far? We haven't actually talked about the symbols for the... Yeah, let's, I guess, let, let, let's get through these, these allophonic versions. Okay, so we, good. We got, we've got that. So, invest, invert, in, inventory. Symphony. Right. Camphor, influence. There's an interesting thing, by the way, that this sort of assimilation, and I think it's called regressive assimilation, I get confused about that, it's has anticipatory. Anticipatory. We're anticipating the sound that follows. So, in a word like impossible, which we spell with an M, it was originally impossible. The root was I-N, and it changed enough in pronunciation because why do a, an alveolar articulation when you're about to do a bilabial articulation? So the spelling changed to I-M, possible, impossible. Right. I remember when I was first learning computers... I always was typing I am input. And yes. the com- the computer had spell check and it kept telling me, no, it's input. And, and I was like, but we say input. Um, Eventually, we will reform our spelling to the point where we do where we spell it I-M-P-U-T. I'm not holding my breath for spelling reform. Um, the, uh, the only other one of those that, um, that I came across, um, and this is more from my own experience is the the sort of nya 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 sound um the uh that occasionally i'll hear someone say something like an onion and they will make a nya sound for the n where the instead of saying onion they're they are combining that n and the the yod sound the yeah into a single action onion um, I wouldn't be surprised if, for many of our listeners if a little introspection would lead them to the same conclu- conclusion on words, on sequences like, can you, can you get that? Mm. Where the tip of the tongue is really not going to lift up to form an alveolar closure. Right. We're making a, a palatal closure instead because we're about to make... Uh, we're moving in that area anyway. Right. There's a radio host... Um, where I live, who is of Canadian-Italian descent. And she, because nya is a big sound in Italian, this is mm-hmm. my pot, potted theory about what's going on, <laughs> uh, uh, she, she says any nya sound, like the news, and coming up is the news, she <laughs> uses the sound, the news, and unusual, she'll say. Um, and so that you sound uh, is uh, combined into this nya sound. So I can't recall if you mentioned this or not, but this is a palatal nasal. A palatal nasal, yeah. And uh, like a lot of palatal sounds, uh, we can hear the little y sound afterwards uh, as we're bringing our great heavy tongue away from the palate. It moves through this zone of y-ishness. Now, as you said with the word onion, uh, there are plenty of places in English where we make n followed by y and we're doing two separate articulations, tongue tip up for n, and then raising the front dorsum up to the y area. Uh, but there are languages where the 
sound is the appropriate one. Spanish, Italian, um, French. Some French. Yes, I love this. Uh, I can't remember where I looked it up, but it was a great set of words to use to demonstrate this. That uh, año is year in Spanish, but año is lambs in French. Año, the year of the lambs. Uh, so, one thing that I think that we haven't mentioned so far, because it sort of doesn't come up in English, is that uh, we use this in English. We use m n in initial positions, in medial positions, and final positions, uh, but we don't do that with n or with this allophonic for us variation nya. Right. Uh, have I skipped ahead? Have well, we... not really. I mean, I, I think syllabic, let's talk about what a syllabic consonant is. Because okay. uh, uh, when we get to talk about this final sound, it's also important that we need to talk about that. And and since the eng, or uh, some people say engya sometimes for hmm. eng, uh, but uh, I think they're just copying the enya uh, by <laughs> saying that. But uh, eng, uh, that, that uh, velar nasal, is uh, uh, oh, it can't it doesn't appear in English except in final and medial positions singing yeah. it, right it can be in yeah. a medial position um, and uh, that, I mean that's not that interesting really um, <laughs> except for me as a teacher that uh, I want to be able to teach people to say na to start a syllable with an a yeah. na and for some people that's really hard. That there's a kind of a mental block that they yes. can't do it, and uh, um, I, I like to do a, a nasal version of the classic tongue twister, butta gutta, butta gutta gutta, butta butta gutta gutta butta, mana gana gana mana. And for some people to do mana gana gana mana, they 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 end up going mana. Manang, they go mananga, mananga instead of mananga. Well, since this is a fresh one to me, let's see if I can do it. It's manangana, yes, manangana, mana, mana. yes, manangana, manangana, mana. Whoa, that's And then hard. you can do patakata badagada, manangana badagada, patakata badagada, manangana badagada, combining uh, them to sort of. That has it, now been it? added to my repertoire. So yes, that initial position. Uh, the, the reason that it that we have a block against it, of course, is it violates English phonotactics. Uh, we have inherent rules, uh, rules that we uh, take on without being able to articulate them. Uh, we know that ng doesn't start a word in English. It just is wrong. <laughs> we no, all have it a doesn't. sense of that. Exactly, and and we take that to mean that it's an impossible articulation. So when we hear somebody, when we hear an African language, for example, that has a n initial, mm -hmm. we almost automatically hear it as something else. Right. So and I'm and typically at, people will replace it with either an M or an N, right? Yes. So someone like Nyo Marsh, who is the novelist from New Zealand. I think I she's no Maori I'm so glad that you came up with an example because I was failing to do that. So uh, most people would pronounce that name Nio. They would change the ng into an N sound. Yeah. Um, 
not to be confused with a GNU. Yes. <laughs> That's the other way around. And and I've always assumed, or at least since I started thinking about these initial ng sounds, that that was some way of representing a ng beginning. A oh, maybe. Uh, I don't know where the word originates, though. So, the next one that we have on the list here that we haven't uh, talked about, I think we may have skipped over it, is the retroflex nasal. Right. Yeah, maybe uh, what we should do is just have a little review moment and start back at the lips and work our way through all the possibilities. Excellent. Why don't you demonstrate and I'll name. Okay, so we start with our two lips. Mm. Bilabial nasal. Then we're moving back to the lower lip and the upper front teeth. Mm. Labiodental nasal. Then we're going to put our tongue right on our gum ridge. Mm. Alveolar nasal. Now there's a variation with a diacritic mark. Mm. Which is the dental nasal. Dental nasal. I guess would come before the alveolar nasal. Technically, so I kind of backtracked. (laughs) So alveolar, then we go to mm, on the hard palate. Yes. Which is? I th- uh, palatal nasal. Palatal nasal. I uh, think that we ought to put retroflex in that spot oh, before palatal. You're right. I am a bad boy. <laughs> so let's back up. So we've just done uh, alveolar. Mm. Yes. Uh, and so then retroflex. Mm. And that means the tongue tip is really pointing right up to the palate. Right. Arna. Terrific. Uh, yes. Okay. So now... After retroflex, we've got palatal, anya. Yes, palatal nasal. Uh, and then the one on my soft palate, anga. Velar nasal. And then we can go even beyond that onto my uvula, anga. Yes, uvular nasal. And for us, since that's there's no phonemic difference, we'd have to think about that as an allophone of our velar nasal. It just sounds like a funny na. Nga. Yeah, so, uh, uh, for instance, in Japanese, we get uh, Nihon, uh, and they frequently will have a syllabic mm sound that's very far back. Um, it's interesting to me that the word futon uh, is, has a lot of Japanese phonemes, the bilabial fricative, the unrounded, close-back u, the t is the same as ours, the not o, as aspirated. Uh, yes, the o is a is a an open o. Uh, open o, yeah. Yes. Or, and so then finally, it's a uvular nasal. So pretty much each of those phonemes is a little different than the English one, and for obvious reasons, we've transliterated it, trans uh, transmouthed it to English into futon. But what surprises me is that because the uvular nasal mm, is closer to our velar nasal. I don't know why we don't call them futongs. Right. I we would, skipped forward. I would think that that has to totally have to do with the tradition of uh, the way uh, Rom- Romaji, Romanized Japanese, evolved, and that the person who developed Romaji uh, was very careful to bring in the this sort of allophonic variation that two Japanese speakers, ng and n, are the same. They are perceived as being one thing. There is the nasal. 
uh, and it has <laughs> multiple variations. And so the transliterator just chose wrote N because there's only one and, choice. And the symbol in Japanese is almost exactly a cursive N. Fascinating. So that's our whole list, and uh, I will set this to you as a challenge because I know that you will easily solve it. Why don't we have any nasals with further back placements than uvular? Oh. <laughs> Think about it for a moment, listeners. Why would it be? It's, it's a little problem with that gate at the back, isn't it? That yeah. if we go any further back, then we obstruct before the air and sound gets to the velopharyngeal port. So we're um, upstream of that fork in the river that you were talking about right, earlier. Right, right. So we can't go further than the uvula. Um, yeah. Excellent. So I think we've covered the sounds and their names. We ought to go back through one more time and talk about the symbols. Right. So our bilabial nasal, mm, we, I think, all know what that is. It's an M. M, uh, yes. I, I think I want to just stop here because I have only a little bit of information about letter forms, uh, the history of the letter forms, and I don't want to spend too much time on that. Uh, what's fascinating is that the Egyptian hieroglyphic is uh, sort of a many jiggly lines like the water, uh, oh. It's a, a water symbol, and if I understand it correctly, the the word that it represented, because there was a phonetic aspect to hieroglyphics, not complete, uh, that symbol, uh, that little water symbol, translated into Semitic, uh, the original Egyptian word was actually pronounced with a n. But the Semitic word for water was pronounced with a m, so it changed its its association to a a bilabial sound because the word in the language that was adopting the symbol used a m. So we're left with those jags, and we have two little jumps in our current form. And uh, as it moved, it sort of lost its its jaggedness uh, and... Uh, we, what the form we've got now, we have an uppercase and a lowercase m. Uh, and the uppercase typically is jaggedy, and yeah. the lowercase is curvy. The curviness comes from switching from chiseling uh, yeah. in stones and using quills to make curvy lines instead. Which are faster. Faster, smoother, yeah. All right, terrific. That's all I need to say about the the moo, the yeah, <laughs> m letter. Okay, so from M, we moved back to the uh, labiodental nasal, and that, that's a variation on an M, isn't it? Yes. And most of the variations of these nasals are essentially the letter shape that you know with the tail of a J. So the, yeah. uh, the nasal, uh, sorry, the labiodental nasal is going to be an M with that J tail on the far right-hand side. Yeah, which, because labiodentals, that's a pretty sparsely populated column, uh, and I believe that symbol came later into the IPA, those little J symbols are used often in the palatal area, and they've been sort of adopted here to go onto the M shape. So I don't think there are any other labiodentals that have 
this form. But there are other nasals that have it, the ang yeah. in particular, yeah. which probably people are familiar with. Um, okay. So terrific. That's the labiodental. It's an M with its far right side hooking down like a J, or like the tail of a G, etc. Right. Okay. Then on to the alveolar, which is a, a regular N. Yes. A uh, little note on the letter form there. That apparently in the Egyptian hieroglyphic was a snake. Oh. Uh, which is kind of cool. You can imagine it. Uh, its head is on the left, and it sort of curves a little bit. Uh, the, I realize now that I might have made that, uh, taken the story that I gave you about the M, and that might have actually been the story for the N. So if anybody really cares about the history of these letter <laughs> forms, I think you'd better double-check to make sure I'm not BSing you. But essentially, it very quickly went into a very similar shape to the M shape, just with one less jag in it. Okay. Uh, let's, uh, let's pause briefly and talk about the uh, diacritic mark for dentalization, which is um, sort of looks to me like a little tooth. Yeah. yeah un- I, underneath. It, it, you could think of it as a staple or a box open at the bottom, but really, since it's dental, it's very convenient to think about it as a tooth. Yes. Uh, and so moving backwards, we get to retroflex. Um, the voice retroflex nasal is going to be, this time, an N with the tail on the right side, but the hook of it goes to the right and not back to the left. And I suppose that you could easily think of that as retroflex, bending backward. That is to say, the right-hand side of the chart is towards the back of the mouth anyway. Yes. So all of the retroflex symbols have a little curve backwards in them to show us that some part of the tongue is bending back. They're, in fact, very easy to identify, aren't they, because of that bending back tail. Okay, so uh, moving back from there, now the tip of the tongue comes down and the the center of the tongue starts to come up towards the hard palate. For our, uh, what Spanish speakers call eñe, the ña-ña-ña sound, this time it's an N, but the left side of the N has the J-like quality. So if you were writing it by hand, you would start by writing a J and then make the top of it uh, like an N. Yeah, students can get a little confused about all these funny hooky Ns, mm-hmm. but if you think about the left-hand hook being a J and the one we're about to get to on the velar being a G on the right, that helps me at least to sort out the difference. I agree. That's that's smart. Um, okay, so then uh, going on to the velar nasal, the, that's uh, the ong sound, ang uh, So, as you just said, the hook is on the right side, but it hooks back to the left. And that symbol has been used in, in English and I think in other languages. For a long time, I looked it up and uh, the name, Ang, has been around for a long time. And the symbol, I think, was 1619 that it was introduced. Specifically, the Wikipedia entry has the guy's name. Uh, and also this very interesting thing that when that symbol wasn't available, printers would often take a capital G and turn it upside down. I've not and seen that. And it sort no. of looks like an Ang. Yes, Ang. of course. I can see that, yes. If you're in a pinch and you don't have your ang handy, you can turn a G. <laughs> Fantastic. Now, um, 
The, the last symbol is the uvular nasal, and that's a small cap N. Yeah, small uh, capital. So exactly. it, it's a capital N, but it's shrunk down to be the same height as a lowercase x. Yes, exactly. It's not an ascender or a descender. It stays on the lower half of the, of the dotted line. Right. And a lot of uh, uvular sounds, there are other uvular sounds that have the same sort of letter form. That is right. to say, a small capital. So that's all of the symbols. And uh, I think that it might be useful to talk about the way N happens in English uh, as it sometimes moves into a velar plosive. I'm mm. not sure if I'm taking this out of order or not, but I'm sure we'll catch up. We write these as NGs, and uh, if we say the word finger, for example, mm. we go to N, and then we're in the ideal place to close the velopharyngeal port, build up a little bit of pressure, and explode. Finger. So just like singer. Yes, exactly. Or Long Island. <laughs> and so this is a really... It's a logical thing that people say singer and Long Island. Uh, the, just as it's a logical thing that we say hunger and finger. Uh, it's a comfortable well, what, So why don't, we, why don't we say singer? That I I actually don't have a good answer for that. Oh, I have a theory. I don't know if it's. Oh, right I'd or love not. to hear it. So, a long time ago, we did say sing when we had a word yes. that ended on mm. We re we articulated both the ng and the release of a g. Uh, over time, we lost that release g when we added on bits of words like an er ending onto singer. We used to say singer, yeah. uh, but when we lost the g on the end of sing, we evolved to also to singer. So words that have the ending tacked on, like singing or singer, uh, lack the, the hard g. Yeah, so Whereas are... hunger, that er was there before we lost the mm, the g, and I should say. And so hunger, we kept it. Uh, whereas and finger we kept finger it. we kept it because there's no such thing as a thing right there's no such thing Lang as a thing language it, it, now there are some interesting accents where people say language but uh, typically language we had the g lang uh, bef before that shift happened and so and that's in, an evolution and in German that transition is complete finger and hunger are the German cognates of the English words finger and hunger. Uh, so, But when they have uh, uh, ng at the end, they're likely to release it, right? Uh, uh, yes. No. I'm, now I, I need to do a little bit more research on German. But this is a fascinating theory, the idea that there's sort of incomplete uh, loss of an articulation... Uh, that's emphasized or, or reinforced by other forms of the word. That, I think that's very reasonable. Right. Um, and similar, and you just used a word that reminded me of it when you said emphasized. Yes. You, you inserted a little P 
that uh, is, well, it's sort of there in the spelling, isn't it? Because we use PH for the F in emphasize, uh, but uh, technically that P is, is part of the F, isn't it? So yeah. emphasize, shifting out of a nasal into a voiceless fricative, we're going to get this little P creeping in. Uh, so back to like symphony, uh, we might insert a P in there, uh, and any time it goes to a voiceless sound, we can get an epenthetic yes. sound. Because we're building up enough energy airflow to go into the voiceless sound, we stop it long enough to build up a little bit of air to create a plosive. Yeah, I think I, th I think that's it. As you know, the sh voiceless sounds take more air to match the, the loudness of the voice sound. And so as we're c shifting from one mode into another, we're, we're also stopping. It's about timing, isn't it, with that port yeah. so that we're closing the, the soft palate just for a moment. Um, and so a lot, lot of people, you know, they, they say dancing. They're putting a little T in there because of that shift. And yeah. uh, some people don't do that at all. And that can be a real struggle if you're a person who says dance and puts a little T in to say dance. Uh, typically, I'm suggesting maybe lengthening the, the nasal consonant gives you a little bit more time to slowly release your soft palate into the, the, uh, uh, the voiceless fricative without that epenthetic sound. Yes, I wondered if you were going to use that word uh, it's almost an example, epenthesis. Epenthesis. <laughs> <laughs> and epenthesis is just adding a little something. Yeah. Yeah, a little. Well, uh, typically, a, 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 what uh, people, I think it comes from spelling tradition, the, uh, a sound that's not in the spelling, I believe, is, is sort of yeah. the root. And it could be a consonant or a vowel. Yes, I suppose, yes. So when we get phylum, that's an yeah. epenthetic schwa. I'm now checking out our list to see what else we've... What's on uh, our song sheet of other things well, we need to talk like about? Well, it looks like we're ready to talk about nasalized vowels. Have we done all of the diacritics that we might hang on these? Uh, we haven't talked about voiceless or unvoiced versions of, of these nasals. Yes. They, they, they are sort of... Um, I do sort of feel like they're one of those things one does as... Uh, you need to do it in theory to cover all the bases, but I've <laughs> never in my coaching career needed to coach someone to actually use one. So Yeah, the list of languages that use these as phonemes is very small and rather peculiar. That is to say, not common languages in my experience. Right. Uh, so the, frequently, uh, in my understanding, these are African languages, um, and so the, uh, uh, typically if you're going to do an African play um, with an obscure language like this, you're probably going to be limited to only place names and character names within the context of the play where you might need that. And you would need an actor who's doing a character for whom those would be their native language to do those. So yeah. um, it keeps narrowing, the, particularly as Western theater people where... Unfortunately, Afrocentric African plays don't get done as often as perhaps they should. Um, we're not encountering many opportunities to use these. I'm trying to rattle my memory. I, I have a vague impression 
of some non-African languages on this very short list, but they're not coming out of my head. Mm. Certainly languages that I'm not going to encounter very frequently. Right. Now, we certainly can make devoiced allophones of the English sounds m, n, and ng. Uh, I'd say probably n is a little harder to run into because of this question of developing it into a plosive, that I'm going to say something rather than something, something. Something. A denasal, or or rather a a devoiced velar nasal is an odd duck, but no, no, I could easily say, Mom, uh, some help, I suppose I could do that. There are certainly places where devoicing can occur. What about a whispered sound? Yeah. Yeah, if you were... If you were whispering that to someone, you might yeah. have a bit of a, a, a So to voiceless. cover those rare instances, uh, we have a simple diacritic, which is a little ring, a little circle underneath the symbol, which says devoiced. Right. And we may have talked about that before. Uh, and there isn't a separate symbol in the IPA for a devoiced version of any of these nasals, which also tells us, as you said before, that it's not phonemic, that they're usually positional variants or assimilations or some sort of adjustment of another, that they're allophonic. Uh, uh, in, in the uh, places I've encountered them are in books like A Course in Phonetics by Latifoged or um, uh, Speech Sounds by Patricia Ashby. Or these, you know, books... Um, that are introducing these ideas about uh, phonetics. And they sort of give me the impression rather sheepishly that (laughs) perhaps if there were more African members of the International (laughs) Phonetic Association that they would actually have to have given them their own symbols. It's just that they're so rarely used by anybody else. Well, there you go. And this is actually in contradiction to what we said before. That is to say this phonemic principle that... If there's a phonemic distinction in any language, we ought to have a symbol for it. But the IPA is also very conservative about doling out symbols. Yes. And you have to have, go through a process where you propose and support and defend and vote on the addition of the symbol. And as you say, if there aren't enough people advocating, that symbol's not going to be there. Yeah. This... Uh, when we finally get around to doing the R episode, I will have a lot to say about uh, R symbols, I think, that ought to be in the IPA. So, I think the next thing on our hit parade is nasalized vowels. Yes. Um, though, uh, one thing that, a uh, little research that I found that I should have mentioned earlier, when we talked about English not having initial mm, velar, mm-hmm. There are, I did a little research in terms of numbers, and there are 146 languages that do have initial velars, and there are 88, including English, that don't include initial velars, uh, and there are 236 languages with no velar nasal. So they just, they typically would just have M and N. Um, Now, to get a percentage out of that, 
Aren't there something like 2,000 languages? That yeah, I think that gives you... So 10% have no velar at all. Um, and 146, so we're looking about 7%, something like that. And so we're really in a fairly small minority, having being one of 88 languages that don't use initial velar nasals. Right. Well, it, there's only twice as many that do, so... And as far as, in, in my experience, and this goes back to the point we were talking about before, uh, I don't have a lot of experience with those languages that have initial velar nasals. Yes. And so my impression is that it's a very rare thing indeed. And in fact, the, a lot of these languages that we encounter on walls.org, uh, Which World is Atlas... Go, you do it, you do it. World Atlas of Language Structures. So the, a lot of those languages have fewer than 500 native speakers. And so um, in terms of global population speaking these, these kinds of languages, we're talking tiny, tiny, tiny fractions of 1%. Yeah. yeah. Um, okay, so uh, on to nasalized vowels. Yes, okay. and we've sort of touched on this in an articulatory way. That is to say, as the, the flow of voiced sound comes out up through the larynx, up through the pharynx, uh, we could leave the velopharyngeal port open, and that sound would flow out of both ports, uh, out of both cavities, the nasal cavity and the oral cavity. Yes. And uh, it would flow more out of the oral cavity, because it's a bigger cavity, and you run into it first, but some Depends of how that big your nose is, I suppose. <laughs> I suppose that's true. I have a very small <laughs> nose. I look like Voldemort, for those of you listening at home. Anyway, uh, if you put... If you had a beard. Exactly, exactly. So if you put your fingertips at your nostrils and make a sort of... sound, mm -hmm. a sort of a nasal flow, you'll feel a little warmth coming out there. Right. Uh, I suppose you could put a mirror under there uh, to... to check to see if you're alive as well and see if there's any nasal flow of that warm air to moisten the mirror. Right. Or you could plug your nose altogether. And if, it, yes. if you feel vibration in your nose, then you know there's something going on there. And this question of nasalized vowels in English is one that the voice and speech teacher encounters uh, quite a bit, actually. And uh, that is because there are aesthetic grounds uh, and perhaps stretching a point intelligibility grounds for preferring uh, not nasal vowels to nasal vowels mm. uh, that is to say there's no phonemic difference there's no reason to say that man and man are different words but they sound different they they do, and there is typically some kind of bias against speech that is generally nasal. Um, yeah. But in, in, there are some loan words where they're difficult to say them without the nasalized vowels of those loan languages. So, for instance, uh, um, I'm not coming up with very many good examples, but I think of uh, uh, Star Trek... The next generation, the captain Jean-Luc Picard, uh, Jean, 
yeah. is a name where uh, it, you know it's written like Jean, J-E-A-N, uh, pronounced en with a nasalized vowel in French. So when you bring that in, into English, people frequently will say Jean uh, as a way of anglicizing that um, pronunciation. But uh, typically people go, oh, that's not quite right. And so they try to make a nasal I sound. They, they might include a, an N at the end, Jean, uh, and create sort of a, a hybrid between French and English. It reminds me of, of Beckett. And I think it's in Endgame, maybe, where uh, one of the characters says, Trey, 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 Bong. That is to say, T-R-A-Y-B-O-N-G. As a way of transliterating the bon, the French pronunciation. Right. Uh, using a, a velar nasal to indicate how nasalized it is. Uh, there is some way in which we perceive nasalized vowels as raised vowels. Uh, if I ask my students to transcribe the word hang, and I pronounce it in that way, many of them, as they listen to their own version of it in their own heads, will say hang, hang, and they'll change the vowel from an a all the way up sometimes to an a, uh, because their way of saying it is actually hang. I'm going to hang out. Hang out. And why do you think there's a tendency for it to raise in that way? Well, I do have a, a pinhead theory about this, and, and that is that uh, in those accents where uh, persistent nasalization of vowels is one of the features, part of the reason that that's happening is that there's a sort of raised tongue position which narrows the oral tract and allows more sound to go out through the nasal passage. So, uh, I'm the, the other the other flip side of that mm -hmm. is that in anticipating the ang, yes. that they're anticipating the action of the tongue, and so they're closing. So thank thank you. Uh, they're closing sooner, and so yes. the a ah becomes more eh like thank you, so and the, then thank you. The movement towards the velar nasal, and that is the tongue component of the velar nasal, the velar closure, moves people towards a higher position. And, and also the release of the velum coming down is, nasal, is nasalizing the vowel. So essentially they're anticipating that mm, through the vowel. And so yeah. it's not just the nasality that's changing, but it's also the tongue height that's shifting. So it's, it's kind of a combo shift. It's the velar action of the following consonant that's doing the tongue raising. The, the state of the velum in itself needn't change the position of the tongue. Well, for many people, there is an, anticip there is an action of the tongue to bring it up to meet the soft palate. That, as yeah. as, that for some people, their, their soft palates have a huge range of motion, and so soft palate's coming down to meet the tongue as much as the tongue is coming up to yeah. meet it. For others, their soft palate doesn't have a huge range of motion, and so to get an mm, they really have to lift the back of the tongue up to meet it, close the mouth to get it up there, particularly if their tongue doesn't move so much either, so that their jaw is lifting the tongue to meet the soft palate. This um, reminds me, too, of a, a feature that's, that's common in Minnesota, for example, where velar consonants after ash sounds uh, cause that ash sound to raise, so you get big, big. instead of bag. Uh, 
And I think that that's a similar thing, that there's a raising action, which is, as you say, pre-articulation of the, of the following sound. Right. Then there's also a, a post-articulation thing about nasality in English, that, that uh, mat, mat is likely to be nasalized as much as uh, tam, yeah. uh, you know, anticipating the amp tam, we might get some nasalization, but on mat, we might also have some Definitely. nasalization. After a nasal consonant, typically there is some nasality, that it takes and a while for that soft palate to get back up again. I don't know if you mentioned this when you were talking about the walls data, that the frequency of nasals, English has three, and they're fairly common uh, consonants for us. Uh, they're they're common in the world's languages, but they're also within English very frequent phonemes. Right. And so, if I've got a line of nasals going on, and I'm going to have to get to a nasal, I might want to maintain nasality all the way through, hmm. because that's an articulation that I don't need to w work on. Right. Right. Uh, um, so that, that, by the way, is the lazy speech argument, which I'm very cautious about. <laughs> uh, we'll say convenient speech that. Uh, right. It's uh, efficient, actually, in a way. Right? If yeah. You don't have to change it, just leave it all nasal all the time. Now, there, there is a, also a kind of a hypercorrection of this, and that's a kind of denasal speech that um, I, I actually fear that uh, I went through a phase where I was hyper-oral, that uh, <laughs> I was so um, uh, fearful of sounding nasal. Someone had told me that I sounded nasal that I started to sound kind of everything was oral as much as possible. <laughs> and so I, my N's and M's started to sound slightly denasal because I was lifting my soft palate so much that I started to sound like I had a cold all the time. Cause and I the was end result of a denasal nasal stop is a voiced stop, an oral stop. Right, so we see that classic, I've got a coded by does. Yeah. Uh, quality where your nose is completely blocked off, where you can't get a sound out. Um, this this seems to be segueing into the notion of vocal qualities, and uh, I, I, I want to share a story that I was also once told by a British voice teacher that I was nasal. And in trying to respond to this correction, I was really denasal and kept getting the note until I reduced my roticity, until I put less R in, and then I was told that, yes, I was being appropriately not nasal. So I do think sometimes people respond to a North American tendency for roticity and label that as nasal, when right. it's, it doesn't have to be nasal. Plenty of North Americans get colds, I'm sure in Canada that's quite a quite a common thing. Yes, um, and sometimes people uh, will connect uh, nasality, which is part of one aspect of uh, North American speech, and perhaps make a generalization about it. So, for instance, the the uh, the poor old uh, ash sound <laughs> ah uh, frequently when it's followed by a nasal consonant. Uh, has a nasal quality for n many North Americans and can also evolve into a different sound altogether, that sort of yeah sound, I can, <laughs> that classic singing in the rain kind of thing. 
can't stand them. Um, that that sound. Uh, often people will say, "Well, all ashes are nasalized," and that perhaps is related to a quality of twanginess that might be confused with nasality. Um, so, can you can you tell us what what you mean by twang? Yeah, you, you brought it up at the beginning of the show. I, I'm I'm stealing the term from Joe Estel, mm. uh, who has a very specific meaning for it, which is essentially areopaglottic compression. That is to say, in the area above the larynx, uh, around the false vocal folds, if there's a little bit of compression there, and I could do this de-dasally completely, there's a kind of a brightness that comes out. And that brightness is... uh, you, You could say that that's what's described when we're talking about the singer's formant, that sort of ping in people's voices that allows them to sing over the orchestra. There's been a lot of study at the National Center of Voice and Speech, and uh, uh, there are a couple of good online uh, tutorials about the subject. That brightness, which is really about tension in the lower half of the vocal tract, produces what I would call twang. Now, the word twang has an ash and a velar nasal, and so I think it originally came from a sense of that both brightness and nasality. But it, let me see if I can produce a a truly nasal sound which is coming out of my nose, but doesn't have much in the way of twang to it. Uh, It's kind of hard for me to do, Uh, but I'm trying to keep my lower vocal tract kind of open and loose, but send as much sound out of my nose as I possibly can. Right. Now, I'm probably also adjusting my ash and doing other things to add to my impression of right. a bright person. <laughs> right. And we don't always successfully separate those qualities. Yes. Very so often, one can be one can be twangy without being nasal. Yes. Uh, and nasal without necessarily being twangy. Yes. And right. one can be denasal and be called nasal. When people say, I've got a cold, my voice is so nasal. Right. What they really mean is they're aware of their, aware of their nasal passages. Yes. Uh, so those three things as vocal qualities are distinct, and, and we ought to be thinking of them distinctly. Right. So if we could, let's just jump back a little bit to nasalized vowels in other languages. Yes, yes. Um, particularly things like French, Portuguese, mm-hmm. uh, Breton, Breton. Uh, Polish, these, we get these sounds. These are phonemic distinctions between nasalized and non-nasalized vowels. Yeah. Yes, and they, they historically they evolved from nasal consonants that, yes. like that G that disappeared at the end of uh, sing uh, in English, in French, uh, they used to say bon with a ng sound, and eventually that became bon. So there are five in French, un, bon, vin, blanc. Is that four? Un, bon, vin, blanc. As, as somebody who uh, spoke French early, you, I'm going to leave you <laughs> to be the confident speaker here because I, I've looked it up, but I have a hard time personally distinguishing between these sounds and then reliably producing them in the French word as they're called for. I grab my French dictionary and I take a look and I try to do what it says there. Right. 
um, that the uh, you know that like many um, versions of a vowel that uh, like for instance uh, bon is an o sound with nasality um, and they're not necessarily going to map onto exactly the same vowel quality mm-hmm. as the non nasalized vowel so uh, uh, bo and bon right. will have a slightly different mouth shape in addition exactly. to the nasalization exactly uh, and depending on what accent of French you speak, those qualities can be quite different from one another. So um, I uh, grew up in Canada, of course, and so my French is primarily Quebecois, and so uh, I might ha- have a, uh, a word like vin, vin, could be very uh, forward, vin, and quite close, whereas uh, vin, could be much more open in Paris. So, it, the, the, like in accents of English, accents of French also have these different vowel qualities, uh, the different vowel heights, really, for these. Um, it's important to note that also some accents of French don't have these nasalized vowels, or at least they still have the articulated final consonant. So, in a place like Marseille, in the south of France, uh, a word like accent, accent in French, accent, uh, they will articulate a final N, so you get accent, uh, and they're articulating uh, the ny sound of the palatal nasal at the end of that. There's a lovely woman whose name is Odette, and if you Google for Odette, and she is uh, from Marseille, and she speaks with a traditional Marseille accent, and she was a a contestant or a winner, I'm not sure, on the uh, equivalent of uh, America's Got Talent. Uh, La France uh, du talent something magnifique or something like that. Uh, and she, she is fantastic. <laughs> this woman, oh my goodness. Uh, she is a, a poet and she does recitation of poetry and she's like 80 years old. And she just breaks your heart with her poetry. Uh, and there's a, there's a lovely recording of her at a banquet hall doing a poem about her southern French accent, uh, sort of her pride in her French accent. Uh, unfortunately, there's the noise of the the people, the wait staff clearing all the dishes <laughs> in the background behind her, clatter, clatter, clatter through the whole thing. Um, but there's some lovely bits that she did on that uh, Francis Got Talent show. Um, if you speak French, uh, worth listening to. And if you don't speak French, you can listen to her, and I, I think you'll you'll be able to hear these final nasal consonants. And and this sort of variation, even though there isn't a meaning built into it in English, there's certainly that sort of variation in, in English nasalization, pre-nasalization. Uh, you know, we might think that we're saying one, but very often we're saying one, and we're not making the n sound and you can see how sounds would merge that uh, if we had we have the words bow and bone uh, if it was common for English speakers all to nasalize to say bow and bone then we would have exactly the same thing we we're in fact very close to that sort of thing in a lot of uh, 
varieties of English, that we're not really making those closures with just nasalizing vowels. I think, in fact, that in uh, some rap and hip-hop music, that this is already happening, that we're getting nasalized vowels instead of closure of final consonants. Um, that is part of the African-American vernacular, particularly in more slangy um, kinds of usages that we get, like in, in hip-hop. So... Uh, let me talk briefly about the uh, intelligibility argument that's often used in speech teaching. One of the arguments, and it's a valid argument, I think, that speech teachers use is to say that we want to make the phones, that is to say the sounds of speech, we want to make them in a detectable way and in a distinct way so that people can tell whether I'm saying bow or bone we want to uh, give that information, or to use Dudley Knight's term, that linguistic detail to the hearer so that they can reconstruct what it is that we're saying. Uh, that's a really reasonable argument. Another argument is that if nasality is pervasive through speech, then there isn't a much, as much difference between speech sounds because they all are blended together into this same kind of nasal sound. That the prevailing nasality becomes a foregrounded feature that maybe obscures the other articulations. Maybe. I buy that. Maybe. Uh, I'm, I'm working up to the aesthetic argument. Uh, but can I just intersperse yeah. that the, the things that are, have to be most distinct between nasal consonants are oral stops and P, B, T, D, K, G, those sounds are not going to be nasal. Yes. Unless you have a cleft palate and your soft palate does not close at all, in which case you literally cannot make those oral stops. Yeah. You're, you're, you're going to be able to make those closures. The and most even nasal... With the yeah. most nasal person, we still can tell the difference between they, when they say ma'am and bam. We yes. can still hear that closure. And so uh, we essentially... For those people, we just filter out the nasality. Um, and so uh, part of me goes... Mm. <laughs> I, I quite agree. Now, here's a, an argument that I'm not making, I'm offering. Uh, <laughs> I'm about to attack it. Uh, not raising the velum represents part of a general laxity and being cautious in my words, <laughs> uh, a, a general uh, lack of tone in the musculature of articulation. And so uh, working with students to uh, detect and remove nasality gives them more muscular energy so that they can do the other sounds more actively. That seems to me like a stalking horse for the aesthetic concerns that are really lying underneath it. All parts of our our articulation are both uh, active and released. You can't, you don't want to make everything active. <laughs> you have to release <laughs> some things. There have to be lazy parts of our speech, and uh, it's absurd to think that more energy is always more clear. Yes, but I do think that uh, the that there is a bias in English against people who have generally 
nasalized speech. Absolutely. And if you want to play a character who speaks with a generalized nasality, then do so. Uh, if you don't want that bias coming against you, you probably can learn to not do that. And so, uh, so someone like um, Sarah Vowell, right? The inimitable Sarah Vowell, who has a small, small girl-like well, quality. Well, she may be inimitable, but could you please imitate her? Well, she has very much like a little girl voice, but it's also very nasal. So she, uh, uh, she, she, uh, uh, and uh, for those of you who like Pixar films, she plays Violet in uh, The Incredibles. Um, but uh, she's she's uh, a regular contributor to This American Life yeah. on NPR. And, uh, uh, and she, she's a brilliant writer, brilliant writer. And there's something to be said that her distinctive vocal quality is uh, part of what makes her unique. And yeah. uh, uh, for what she uses it for, it's fantastic. But Sarah Val is not trying to do 57 different voices. Um, she's not trying to voice Harry Potter by herself. <laughs> Um, uh, she's just being Sarah Vo Vowell, and when she plays a character, she plays a character who sounds exactly like her. Uh, most actors want more ver variety than that. Um, and so, I, so it, it is something worth working with actors on. Uh, I've known actors to have generally not, to not have nasality in general, but to have nasality on some phonemes. Yes. So, for instance, they might have it on E. Um, so, they, they, it's nice to meet you. Uh, I really, I, I can't dream of, of, of being anyone but myself. And Within, that sound, whoa. In trap words, for example, there's, a, in, in many accents, a, a nasal system of, of difference between uh, trap and tramp. Uh, that, that, that actually the whole category of words is separating into the nasal and non-nasal version. Right. So I, I want to come back to the sort of aesthetic question and the impression left by nasality, but I do want to make a positive argument for it first. Okay. A nasal voice, maybe also a twangy voice, has more carrying power. Absolutely. That if you want to be heard in a big theater, you might really, in fact... Even though there are certainly nasal phonemes in my own speech, I find it impossible to be heard in a bar, and I don't like to go and talk to people in loud places because I always overwork my voice. Because I have this big, sloppy, sort of low, rumbly kind of voice that doesn't get through without effort through noisy circumstances. And you're probably and, drinking a beer while you're well, at it. several, in fact. So that gets in my way as well. So, the people who have those sort of piercing voices, are, are, they have an advantage over me in terms of audibility and therefore intelligibility in difficult acoustic circumstances. I, I think I've told the story before, perhaps when we... Did we do a tra trap episode? We, oh, yeah. We, we, uh, that my brother, who works in a can factory, uses nasality as a means of getting his voice over the sound of machinery. And it, it really, he, he wasn't doing it consciously. He said, come on with me onto the floor. Now you'll see right over here. <laughs> <laughs> I thought he was joking at first, but uh, <laughs> nope, that's how he talks on the shop floor. It's an unconscious 
strategy. And it works. And, you know, you can use twang, you can use a variety of things to, to do that. I just don't do it very well. Uh, I do notice, by the way, that my brother uh, has a much more nasal voice, just in general, and I, uh, he teaches painting, so I don't think he really has to use it to get over the sound of turpentine, of <laughs> scrubbing brushes. Uh, but it's just a difference, that is to say, it's a feature of, of Iowa speech that I may have moved away from and that he still retains. So, aesthetics and the sort of folk psychology of nasality. I did an experiment, and uh, after doing the experiment, I realized uh, that it had been a topic of discussion on language log, uh, so somebody had already done some of the research for me. I googled nasal asterisk voice, or nasal asterisk accent, and I got nasal American accent, nasal California accent, nasal every accent anywhere around the world was described as nasal. Uh, also the word flat, and a whole set of these impressionistic words that have come to mean not like. <laughs> <laughs> Unpleasant. Exactly. His horrible, I hate it accent. Uh, it doesn't matter really what the actual acoustic properties of the accent are. If if it's associated with some negative quality, it's often described as nasal. Right. Or now, some let's, other... Now, let's just be clear. There are some accents that do feature a lot of nasality. So Definitely. For, so, cliches about this, Australian accents frequently have uh, a great deal of nasality. Or Chicago accidents... Accidents? Chicago? <laughs> We're going to be in Chicago. We're so voice so teachers, I... can you tell? <laughs> exactly. So, Chicago accents have perhaps more nasality, but they also have raising of, of trap. And so front vowels are raised already, and then if there's nasality as well, those characteristics are associated with the accents. And if the people speaking those accents were considered to be the intellectual elite or the social winners of all American society, we would simply call that his elegant nasal accent or his full-throated nasal twang or something right. glorious. The power of his voice. Exactly. Uh, so there is nothing inherent, there, there are no moral qualities of voice, as we've said on many occasions before. And that doesn't mean that our students and our audiences don't have those same feelings. So an actor wanting to be employed and an actor wanting to be able to create the effect they want to create needs to be able to be the master of these sounds. Yes. But that doesn't mean that we need to be on board with the, the pejorative language or the negative associations. Sure. And, you know, the, the, uh, it's not just North America. It's also, you know, Birmingham. There's a very strong bias against Brummy accents because yeah. of the nasality of the accent. Um, and that... Uh, recently reading blog posts about the bias against Birmingham and how it's the most hated accent in England <laughs> because of nasality. Yeah, it's sort of shocking, actually, to hear in the popular media, which I think then reflects people's internal unexamined associations, how very much people 
dislike people and their sounds uh, with you know if you if you inserted some uh, descriptive adjective about skin color you'd very quickly see how biased it, it really is and speech teachers feel perfectly happy saying oh you've got an awful nasal you we have to change that yes and I'm and not so, saying... So the, the sort of the impression that just about everybody comes in as damaged goods and it's the speech teacher's job to fix them. It's, yes. Uh, and, you know, I have to say, there are a lot of students who come into my class with that bias. I sound awful. Make me sound good. Uh, and I have to say, you don't sound awful. You sound like you. And there's nothing wrong with you sounding like you. However, I'm certainly happy to help you sound like other people so that that's a I'm, I'm willing to let you play around with the way you sound uh, so and let me see your definition can, of you can change I'm going to try to channel the uh, a voice teacher listening to us and thinking we're corrupting America's youth with this kind of talk <laughs> listen Eric Phil that's all well and good we understand all that PC stuff but the fact of the matter is these students come in with lazy contemporary voices and they do they have these speech faults and they need to be fixed if they're going to be able to do Shakespeare or even be employed that they're not going to have a lead role on a TV series even with that with that kind of voice which is you might say it's all beautiful and kumbaya but it's not going to get them a job what say you <laughs> the old you, you'll never get a job uh, argument ha has been used for a long time in theater schools I think as a fear tactic um, to make people change um, and it's uh, a, a great strategy because uh, <laughs> partly because e as educators we want to feel like we're, we're not taking people's money for nothing. The yeah. uh, fact of the matter is that many of our students aren't going to work regardless of how hard we work. <laughs> um, and so I, I almost have to kind of put that argument aside. That's true. They're not going to work anyway. Even if we do a brilliant <laughs> job and change them to exactly what you want, half of them aren't going to get work. Um, so, uh, but the... Uh, and, and I do think that there is... Oh, that kind of bias that there, from from which that this argument comes is often held by casting people and artistic Certainly. directors, and so it. I, I think it's worth talking about in class to say yeah. there is a bias against this. I'm not going to tell you you can't sound nasal, but if you sound nasal, there will be people out there who will judge you in the same way that if you have. Uh, if you say uh, have a hypersibilant S, and your S's are very tight, then there'll and be someone out there to tell you. There could be not gonna people hire out you. there who are not going to hire you because you're Asian, and so then you have a political decision to make, and you need to do things to change the world. So if you are in love with your nasality, then you're going to want to run your own theater, frankly. Uh, and then show people how good that can sound. Right. So uh, let me see if I can channel this bully, this speech bully, one more time, uh, <laughs> and say that uh, if you're not going to fix these flaws, 
if you're not going to do this basic work of speech work, then what the heck are you doing? Mm. If you're if you're wasting their time, uh, just holding hands, uh, what is the value in what you do? Uh, <laughs> I'm so glad I don't have to answer these questions. <laughs> well, uh, the the beauty of it is that uh, um, fixing. I, I I think that's the the turning point for me. That that. Uh, ultimately teaching people the ability to make change is what I'm about. And if that uh, allows them to modify their speech in a way that satisfies other people, um, so the casting director who wants you to sound a certain way, or the, uh, the role that you take on that is unlike anything that you've ever imagined before. So you're, you're playing a character who's uh, a character with dwarfism, but is supposed to be played by an act, a full-grown actor, and you have to somehow take on a vocal quality that represents dwarfism. How on earth do I do that? Being able to play with your vocal apparatus in some way to make those changes. And the confidence... Yeah. that you can change the way you sound. I think, uh, uh, you know, the, to mess around, to play, is ultimately the skill that I hope that people will walk away with. And um, uh, unfortunately, I, I fear that many of my students internalize that uh, it's about writing symbols on pages and things like that, that, that I'm obsessed with... They think I'm obsessed with something that I'm not, yeah. um, and uh, uh, so that that is uh, uh, my, my fear is that it becomes about a prescriptive thing that they think they have to get it right rather than they can find a way to play. So I'm, I'm going to jump on your side for a moment and stop giving you bullying comments because I absolutely agree with what you're saying. I also think that there's some value in getting our students accustomed to thinking about these issues politically in their in their actual cultural context. So the, not only have they never considered how they're articulating a velar nasal, they've never considered how they feel and what it means in their cultural context to nasalize a vowel. Right. And so we're providing that as well. Yeah. Excellent. Have we completed our diatribe for the day? Uh, you know, we, we haven't talked about nasal plosion. And we sort of almost began with it, and then you sort of said, oh, we'll come back to it. <laughs> well, I guess so I better... So I said a teaser. Um, and uh, <laughs> uh, so for, for me, you know, I, I use nasality and switching from a nasal stop to an oral stop as a means of getting people to feel their soft palate. So I mm -hmm. take a word like uh, ban and compare it with band. Uh, and we work on not releasing the D. So we go ban, and then we say that, and we're going to pop the soft palate up to close off the D without releasing it. So ban, ban, and that little closure action, people can feel it quite distinctly. Then you can do it with uh, uh, a word like dam and damp damn, damp, and you feel it mm, kind of feeling. Yeah. With with a word like bang and bank, 
there's less of a sensation because the tongue is on the soft palate. And it's but about how firmly we're closing. It, it, yeah. But also because the tongue's stuck there, if your soft palate's going to come up on the end of bank, then the tongue has to go with it. And so you may actually feel the action of the tongue going with the soft palate more than the soft palate. To close off the alipharyngeal Yeah, port. exactly. Um, so I, I, that's my way in to get this feeling of it. If we're, we're going to talk about nasal plosion, uh, let's Which just, we were just talking about nasal stopping in a way. Right, yeah. Or v- velar stopping, right? That closure of the velum to make an oral stop out of a nasal stop. If a, na- a nasal plosion happens on something like bitten, right, where we're going from an oral into a nasal. Um, and to talk about this, I think we have to talk a little bit about the tendency of oral stops to be co-articulated with glottal stops. Yes. And the, the problem, in my mind, of teaching nasal plosion is that for most North Americans, at least, oral stops are co-articulated with glottal stops. Yeah. And they're so reinforced. I, I they're reinforced, word. yeah. So if I say something like bit, I'm closing with my tongue at my gum ridge, but I'm also stopping at my glottis. And uh, when I add an N on the end of that, bit, generally what's happening is I'm making the bit and then I'm going to drop this off palate in the closure of the glottis and then release the glottis bit mm. and you yeah. that pop kind of sound comes from the the sudden onset from the closed glottis going into vibration and to follow down that pathway as long as we're doing that glottal closure uh, and that's sort of primary because it's first in the stream of air it's entirely possible to then leave the nasal business out of it and turn it into bit in so that's an increasingly common articulation. Right. So that it's just a timing difference yeah. that the, the nasal comes on after. And in the case of bit in, I've basically stopped at the glottis. There's no reason to do any further closures anywhere higher up. And then I release at the glottis, and I have no reason to do any closures higher up. So they're versions of the same thing, but as soon as the glottal stop gets in, intruded into there... Uh, it takes over the role of the other articulators. So, let me just talk through the articulation of nasal plosion, uh, flow of voiced air from the glottis going up. It's about to go either through the mouth or through the nose, and at that moment when I stop on the word like didn't, I stop for a voiced alveolar plosive at both places, as we always do, at the velopharyngeal port and at the alveolar ridge. So that building up of pressure phase of the D is bid stopped in both places. Uh, then I could explode for the D straight out the front. I could explode it orally and say did didn't, for example. In which case, the D and the N are separated by a vowel, which is an oral vowel, not a nasalized vowel. It could be nasalized. Did, didn't. And that's certainly one of the ways I heard it when I was growing up, didn't. Even if that vowel is very, very short, there's a full explosion of an oral plosive 
followed by a re-engagement of the alveolar closure and an, explo- and an open velopharyngeal port. Didn't. The, the difference with nasal plosion, it's a great name, but it can be confusing. It's really nasal plosion of a plosive. That is to say, or nasal plosion of a stop. So the alve- alveolar stop, d, is exploded nasally. Mm. So the buildup of pressure in that area is released through the velopharyngeal port. Out the back, as Out the back, exactly. Or through the nose gate, as I've been... uh, I love the term nose gate. I want it to be more popular, so please spread it. Sounds like a scandal, though. Nose gate. (laughs) Tonight at 11. (laughs) Details at 11. Obama (laughs) caught in nose gate. (laughs) So... uh, so that's really, in terms of describing the articulation, nasal plosion is a pretty easy thing to do, and everybody can sort of do it as a separate action. Getting it back into words where people aren't accustomed to doing it, I absolutely agree with you, is a matter of teasing apart the glottal reinforcement and seeing if we can do without it. So that we can make didn't that nasal plosion, even a very light nasal plosion, stand in for what we've become used to, which is the glottal reinforcement. Do you think that's clear? Yeah, I think it's clear. You know, the, I remember I was trying to teach it to people, and I, I uh, used to try to explain that it had a kind of a funny sensation, didn't it? But if you do it slowly enough, you get this kind of funny sensation in the back. And I, I used to say, you know, it's like Coke going up your nose. <laughs> And I get these gales of laughter. And like, yeah, that's a weird sensation, isn't it? I had no idea that it sounded like I was talking about cocaine going up my nose. And, and finally, someone said to me, you mean Coca-Cola, don't you? And I was like, what, what, what are you talking about? Of course I mean Coca-Cola. Uh, oh, you poor innocent. That's me. I'm so naive. Um, so... Uh, so we- so yeah, I think that our students do have a sensation of what this articulation is. And just pulling it apart is a really useful thing for understanding all these articulations, which is why I always, and, and Dudley Knight and I do this, we do most of our work with describing articulations before we even get to the symbolic representation uh, and and then maybe we could make some prescriptions at the end. Saying the words symbolic representation reminded me that we didn't mention what the symbolic representation of nasal plosion is. Uh, because it's describing the way the stop is exploded, it's a diacritic that one puts on the plosive. So a D, for example, in didn't, a D will have a little N superscript after it, to say this D is exploded nasally. And then in the case of didn't, it would be followed by a syllabic nasal, which I realize is another topic we didn't cover. So quickly, a syllabic consonant is a consonant where the, the syllable is uh, taken up primarily by that consonant, or it forms the nucleus, if you will, of mm-hmm. the syllable. So, yeah. uh, you, you know, a, a word like ambition, the shn syllable has two elements, sh and n, but there is no vowel element. Yeah. The sonorant quality of that n 
takes the place of the vowel. Yeah. And because it has a continuant possibility, has a length, so it can take the time of the whole syllable in terms of our timing of the language, um, it can work. So uh, some people will argue that even things like uh, an R, rather than it being a vowel R, they think of it as a consonant R being syllabic R. Um, and that's just another way of thinking about language, rather than, whereas we use a, you know, a, a vowel representation of that R, those people would use a consonant with a syllabic mark in their notation system, and they'd think of it as a consonant. I'm not happy with that system, but there are people who do it that way. Well, certainly when we finally deal with R, that will be one of our many topics. Yes, that and pirates. Yes. yes. So, terrific. I think we've been fairly exhaustive. At least I'm exhausted. So, uh, I... I want to wrap up just by reminding people that if you manage to, if we manage to get this edited and up in time before the conference, people will be able to listen to it before the conference. And if you're at the conference, please come. It's on the tenth. Is that right? Sixth to the tenth. Uh, but but our presentation oh. of Glossonomia Live. I don't know. I, I don't think know. It, I don't know either. So uh, it will be there. If you're there, please come join us there. And uh, we'll have a, a wonderful group. Uh, you get to be on Glossonomia. It's fantastic. Cool. <laughs> Excellent. I, I do also want to uh, give a shout-out. Somebody told me that uh, uh, they listen to Glossonomia while working out. Oh. And, and while I should say that that might be dangerous if you pass out from boredom while on the treadmill, uh, <laughs> please be careful. Uh, or if your enthusiasm for consonants... Uh, leads you to leap or drop your weights, please be careful. But uh, it was nice to hear that people are, are using this both in their classes, but also as a sort of background chat about the sounds that we're all interested in. And uh, however you use glossonomia, please keep doing so. And if you find it useful, please go on to iTunes and write us a review. We have a few more, I've noticed. Oh, great. So uh, keep it up. Uh, we don't expect to be the most popular podcast in the world, uh, but we do want as many people as could benefit from the podcast to be able to hear it. Yes, and if you're a teacher, it'd be great if you could plug us to your students. They could listen in. Though it may seem pretty challenging for a student, I think they can catch on. And, you know, there are, there, within all of my classes, there's always some person who sees themselves as the phonetics nerd of the class, and they love this kind of thing. I have to say that I, I've had students recently who are struggling, and to whom I assign glossonomia, I promise it's not a punishment, uh, and just that process of listening through an in-depth discussion expands what uh, the, the way they're able to grasp the material. So for precocious students, for future voice teachers, definitely, but also for students who need some supplement, uh, this can be a valuable thing to add to your classroom teaching. We hope. We hope. Well, thanks. This has been fun. Yeah, likewise. And uh, I'll see you in Chicago, Eric. I will see you. If you want to email us, you can send us an email to glossonomia at gmail.com. And we love getting emails from you. Wonderful. I'll talk okay. to you next time. See ya. Bye. Bye. <coughs> oh, I've been <coughs> preventing a cough 
for this entire thing. Uh, I'm turning this off.